You're listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clarke. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clarke. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details, you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions, which are available from many online booksellers, including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the new Revised Standard Version. Chapter 5. Mercy and Justice An initial thought to ponder. Please search the web for photos of the statue Justice Tempered by Mercy at Samford University's Cumberland Law School. As usual, Justice is blindfolded, so that she must weigh the evidence and pass judgment without seeing either the accused or the accuser. What do you think Mercy might whisper to Justice? Chloe stood in court to hear the judgment, which would almost certainly include jail time. She was 22, on a good behaviour bond from a previous conviction, and now charged with assaulting her partner, possessing illegal drugs, and trying to bribe a police officer. Chloe's early life had been far from smooth. Her parents' marriage broke up when she was three, and over the next ten years she lived sometimes with her mother, who was alcoholic, and sometimes with her father, who was physically abusive. Both parents encouraged her to fight back when she was threatened, and between 8 and 12 she was part of a competitive fighting club. At 13 she moved in with a boyfriend, and then another, and another. She took one of those boyfriends to court for beating her, but the police lost the photographic evidence and the case was dismissed. She left one school because of being bullied, and was expelled from two others. At 19 she was pregnant and reliant on government welfare payments. At 20, As a single mother who had not completed high school, Chloe had little social support and no job prospects. Although she loved her young son and wanted his life to be better than hers, she lived with self-protective anger in survival mode. She often exploded with uncontrollable rage. Two events gave her the opportunity to turn her life in another direction. The first was enrolling in a high school that ran a program specifically for young parents, The school campus included the childcare facility, where Chloe could drop off her son while she attended classes. Today she's still studying part-time at that school, and will soon complete her final year. When she started at that school, she was quite aggressive, though grateful for the opportunity it gave her. The school program is founded on the idea that all students are loved and valued. The childcare facility, an on-campus psychologist, Alternative classroom formats and assessment processes all contribute to an environment that supports the difficult journey of people like Chloe. She says the school was the first place that accepted her and believed in her. By aptitude and training, the staff are attuned to the challenges of the students and provide explicit emotional coaching. Always looking for the best in the students, the staff do not rescue them, but draw out the potential from within them, teaching them to look after themselves without hurting others and without cutting themselves off from help. In Chloe's case, their kindness and the skills of self-awareness they have nurtured are helping her to learn to control her explosive tendencies. 
At times that progress has been interrupted by damaging outbursts, like the time Chloe punched a worker in the gym next to the school. The gym owner demanded she be expelled, but the school's senior staff worked hard to find a better solution. The incident scared Chloe and prompted her to rethink her trajectory. She knew that if she were expelled, it would be the end of her hope to complete high school and a bad prospect for the rest of her life with serious consequences for her son. At school, she had tasted something good and now might lose it. She had been told that she was worth it and maybe started to believe it herself. She was allowed to study from home for several months with remote supervision and then returned to the campus with the requirement that she goes nowhere near the gym. Chloe's not going to give up easily. She started to see a drug counsellor, and a recent series of 15 random drug tests have all come back negative. She pays with her own money to see a psychologist focusing on anger management. At the end of 2021, Chloe received the Principal's Award for her attitude and application to her studies. However, none of that altered the charges against her and the looming court hearing which could negate all the progress she had made. The charges were serious, and given that Chloe was already living under a good behaviour bond, jail time was the most likely outcome. Clearly she was guilty, and the requirements of law dictate that she be punished. But would that be truly just? Would it resolve anything? Would imposing further hardship on Chloe somehow balance the crime and the damage done by her? Or is there a deeper justice that sees the damage done to Chloe and seeks to bring back some fairness and dignity to her life? The judge had driven to court that day, thinking about the devastating statistics of crime and social dysfunction in the area. Without meeting Chloe, she was already thinking about youth like her and about how important education was in breaking past cycles of abuse. Having read of Chloe's commitment to the school program, to counselling, and to giving up drug use, she surprised everyone with her verdict. Her closing comments were, You should be very proud of yourself. I will be dropping all your charges. Good luck with your studies. Institutions such as schools and courts are not generally known for showing mercy. Institutions have too many rules to dictate what is required and prescribe what their staff are allowed to do. In Chloe's case, though, the best aspects of institutional diligence have been shown. People within those institutions, the staff at Chloe's school and the judge in the court, embody the heartbeat of Shalom. They see Chloe through eyes of compassion and choose to push the boundaries of institutional rules to give her another chance. Those types of actions are always risky because the new opportunity might be squandered. For Chloe, however, the dual mercies of the school and the judge gave hope. Hope that the ill treatment she received as a child can be overcome. Hope that she can finish high school, find a job and move away from dependence on welfare payments. Hope that she can properly care for her son and give him a more nourishing upbringing than her own. After reading a summary of these events... Chloe asked me to add, quote, Without the compassion, understanding and forgiveness I've been shown, I wouldn't have the life I do now. I wouldn't have learnt to be the resilient person I am today if it wasn't for others giving me that opportunity. I've learnt forgiveness from being forgiven. And I will always be grateful for the opportunities I can have now, thanks to my school and others in my life. End of quote. That's the outcome of mercy when compassionate people go out of their way to give someone a new opportunity and the person receiving that kindness recognises the gift, 
remarkable transformation can occur. Subheading. Are mercy and justice in conflict? In this chapter I return to one of the repeated debates about the nature of mercy, namely its relationship to justice. More than one perspective on mercy positions it in direct opposition to justice, but to me they operate collaboratively. At least one contemporary Jewish rabbi, Dr. David Gottlieb, takes the view that mercy is fundamentally in conflict with justice. To him, mercy is by definition the suspension of justice. In a court, a plea for mercy only arises after one is found guilty. Mercy presupposes that a person is guilty, but asks that the full extent of justice not be applied. Gottlieb attempts to align this to the Hebrew scriptures by making both justice and mercy subservient to God's love, chesed. Love, he claims, is the whole purpose of all creation, and in different contexts, God uses either justice or mercy to serve the goal of love. Justice establishes laws and punishments to provide a structure for human life that enables us to live together harmoniously and to experience love. There are times, however, when justice is inadequate for that purpose, and the higher goal of love requires justice to be overruled by mercy. In my view, Rabbi Gottlieb has misframed the issue. Yes, justice and mercy both serve the goal of love, but justice and mercy cooperate rather than compete. To frame them as being in conflict shows a misconception of both concepts. First, Note that mercy applies not only in the context of the courtroom. Contrary to Rabbi Gottlieb, mercy does not always imply guilt. Mercy is certainly expressed at times as the withholding or reduction of punishment, but mercy can also be the alleviation of someone's pain, financial assistance, being present in times of grief, or other responses to someone's need. In such cases, there's no conflict with justice, regardless of how justice is conceptualised. Second, even in the courtroom setting, where guilt has been established, conceptualising justice as the imposition of punishment is a very shallow view that trivialises the depth of biblical examples. Many people today certainly see justice primarily in terms of punishing lawbreakers. A criminal violates some law, harming some victim in the process, and the role of justice is to punish the criminal and, perhaps, compensate the victim. From this perspective, justice involves balancing the books. Those who do bad things get punished, those who do good get rewarded, and perpetrators are required to repay their victims for whatever damage was done. When justice is viewed as getting what you deserve, and you are found guilty of some criminal or moral failure, then justice would seem to require that you pay somehow. You may need to repay the cost of whatever damage you did. Perhaps justice requires your deed to be exposed to the public to bring your name into disrepute. Or perhaps justice requires you to suffer in order to balance the scales through some eye-for-an-eye exchange. From that perspective, showing mercy is a denial of justice. If someone is guilty, then justice requires one thing, but mercy permits the opposite. Mercy lets the offender off the hook by not imposing the just penalty. Mercy holds back the hand of justice. However, that's not the only way to frame the concept of justice. Although it is the dominant approach in our modern Western culture, there are several philosophical, criminological, and theological alternatives. Justice is not equivalent to the law. 
In fact, some laws are patently unjust. A central concern in the Bible is the maintenance of shalom, a state in which humanity can flourish because relationships are whole and good, including relationships with each other, with God, and with the created world. The Bible depicts justice as God's means of addressing the lack of shalom. God's justice aids the weak, the poor, and the oppressed, and breaks the power of the oppressor. God's justice reverses people's fortunes so that inequality is transformed, the feeble are strengthened, the hungry find food, and the barren have children, the weapons of the mighty are broken, the proud are brought low. God's justice makes things right by transforming the status quo of need and oppression into a situation where things are as they should be. God's action for justice is not based on the merits of individuals, but on their need. Such a view of justice may still make use of laws, law enforcement, courtroom judgments and punishment, but the biblical view is so much larger and more redemptive than the retributive view. Shalom-oriented justice works hand-in-hand with mercy. The intention of both is to maintain shalom and to restore shalom after it has been lost by accident or by deliberate harm. Neither mercy nor justice are final goals, but co-workers in the construction of shalom. Rather than pulling in opposite directions, mercy and justice are both expressions of love that act in the service of shalom. Chris Marshall, a leading theological advocate for restorative justice, makes this point very clearly. Quote, We often think of mercy and justice as opposites. To show mercy when wrongdoing has occurred means suspending or disregarding the penalty which justice requires. Mercy thus represents a kind of injustice. But this is only the case if we think of justice in strictly arithmetic or legalistic terms. If instead we understand justice in terms of restoring healthy relationships, then mercy is often the best way to get there. Mercy helps to bring about, rather than to interfere with, justice. Compassionate acceptance of human fallibility is essential to the functioning of healthy relationships. Where failure occurs, justice must be seasoned with mercy, or it is not true justice. End of quote. Subheading. Doing without dessert. Through a long history in both philosophy and law, justice has been based on an ideal of everyone receiving what they deserve. Although there have been compelling arguments against this desertist view of justice, it remains a popular conception. This view is incompatible with what I have been saying about mercy, and to genuinely love mercy, one has to give up believing that the concept of desert bears any relevance to how we treat others. A brief comment is needed about the word desert, because it's a rare use of that word, and easily confused with several other words. It's pronounced the same as the dessert you might have at the end of a meal, and is the noun form of deserving, as in the sentence, the criminals got their just desserts. I do not mean arid places with sparse vegetation, nor do I mean running away from something, like deserting a friend in times of trouble. The idea that there is a moral necessity for people to get what they deserve is deeply embedded in Western thinking, and often read back into the Bible, That is, if you already believe justice to be a matter of good people being rewarded and bad people being punished, then you can justify that belief by citing verses from the Bible. 
Proverbs 14.14, for instance, says, The perverse get what their ways deserve, and the good what their deeds deserve. And Galatians 6.7 says, You reap whatever you sow. One could argue that humanity is totally depraved, sinful to its core, at enmity with God, and as such deserves God's just retribution. One could argue that Jesus, the one person who did not deserve punishment, took the weight of God's wrath so that God would not have to punish the ones who did deserve it. But do not imagine that this telling of the, quote, good news is the only, quote, Christian understanding, or the one true way of reading the biblical narrative. Many dedicated followers of Jesus have interpreted the gospel differently from that. I will not repeat their arguments here, but I will point out some biblical counterexamples to the misconception of deserved retribution. Part of the misconception is a confusion between consequences and moral desert. For instance, how you read Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, depends on your preconceptions. For one who believes in moral desert, it seems to be saying, because you sin, you deserve to die. If you put aside moral desertism, however, that punitive interpretation falls away, and the verse can be read as, the inevitable consequences of sin is death. Many verses commonly used to support the desertist view depend on that same presuppositional mistake. On the other hand, many biblical passages note how often people do not get what they deserve. Multiple verses note that good people do not get good things, and bad people do not get bad things. Many of those passages express a hope, or even a firm belief, that God will eventually bring about the writer's conception of of what each person deserves. Psalm 37 is a prime example. And yet, Jesus repeatedly questions the whole notion of getting what you deserve. He presented, in word and deed, a God who causes the sun to shine on all people, regardless of whether they are evil or good. John reported an incident in which Jesus encounters a man born blind, and the disciples, operating on a basis of getting what they deserve paradigm, asked Jesus, whether it was the man's own sin that caused his blindness or his parents. Jesus replied that it was neither, and refuted any sense of desert by healing the man on the spot. On another occasion, Jesus confronted the same paradigm by pointing to two events of the day, the murder of some Galileans by Pontius Pilate and the collapse of a tower that killed 18 people. Did such catastrophes happen to particular people because they morally deserved it? Jesus says a clear no. In Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, there is no indication at all that the person who was beaten and robbed either deserved such treatment or not. What was important was that they should be shown mercy, regardless of any desert one way or the other. I used to believe that the proper response, the just response, to wrongdoing is to punish the wrongdoer. That assumption was so deeply ingrained that the younger me was unable to question it, It's woven into our legal system, into a pervasive understanding of God, into our approach to parenting, international relations, the war on terror, asylum seekers and human traffickers. But it is foreign to the attitude shown by Jesus and foreign to the image Jesus presents of God. The turning point for me, though the power of the idea had been crumbling for many years, was a comment by Darren Belusek about these words of Jesus from Matthew 5, 44-45, quote, 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. How does Jesus respond when betrayed by friends? Undrustly treated by a legal system? And treated violently to the point of death? Does he show any signs of vengeance? Any sign that the people harming him should fear punishment? Of course not. He says, Father, forgive them. Jesus told his followers that the appropriate response to evil is love rather than retribution. But what Belusik showed me for the first time was the reason Jesus gives. Why should followers of Jesus not seek revenge? Quote, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. End quote. That is, since God does not seek revenge, neither should God's children. God sends rain and sun equally on all people, not just those who deserve it. When we see someone metaphorically striking God on the cheek, we should never expect or hope that God will smite them, nor that God will swing to hit the sinner and clobber Jesus instead. Those who strike God on the cheek can expect God to turn the other cheek. To be God's children, we should be merciful, just as God is merciful. This view is at odds with the belief of many Christians who feel able to show mercy now only because of an assurance that God's retributive justice will correct it later on the final day of judgment. In the meantime, writes James R. Harrison, quote, because God will carry out a definite eschatological accounting, believers are able to act mercifully toward their enemies and persecutors amid inexplicable evil, end of quote. This makes mercy temporary and second best, as though we are called to be merciful because God's wrath will come later. This is a far cry from Jesus' call to be merciful because God is merciful. Perhaps many find the idea of giving up the idea of retribution difficult, because in that case people who commit horrible acts will just get away with it. To eschew retribution can seem too soft, and too tolerant of evils that really should be opposed. Well, that misses the point. I agree that one alternative to retribution is to just accept any behaviour and not judge anything to be evil, but that's certainly not the alternative Jesus promotes. His life stands in clear opposition to evil, and his death displays the power of love over evil. We can take the horror of real evil seriously, and seek with all our heart, mind and strength to prevent, expose and oppose evil, and to heal its consequences, without needing revenge or retributive punishment. To avoid being misunderstood, I need to differentiate a couple of concepts that can be confused with desert. One is human rights. I do not think it's necessary to say she deserves a fair trial, or he does not deserve to be enslaved, since these are basic human rights equally applicable to all people. All people have a right to a fair trial and a right not to be enslaved. People have rights by virtue of being people, and such rights can neither be earned nor forfeited. So when I recommend that we stop using the word deserve, I'm not implying that human rights go away. People have rights quite independently of whether we wish to say that they deserve either rewards or punishments. To deserve is a moral judgment based on something we do, whereas a right is inherent in our humanity regardless of what we do. 
Second, there are some cases where we use the term deserve without attaching any moral judgment. I remember watching a running competition in which a water bottle thrown by a spectator hit one of the athletes just a short distance from the finish line. Now, suppose the athlete had been coming first, and purely because of missing a stride when the bottle hit them, finished in second place. We might say quite truly that they deserved to win, but that's not a moral judgment. It would not be so true, however, to say that some kind or poor person deserved to win the lottery, or that a school student deserved to get a better grade because they had tried so hard, or that someone deserved to be raped because they dressed provocatively, or that someone deserved HIV-AIDS because they were a promiscuous homosexual. No one deserves AIDS. No one deserves to win the lottery. No one deserves heaven. No one deserves hell. As long as we are stuck in the mire of what people deserve, we cannot fully appreciate the grace or the mercy of God. The biblical God seeks to restore all things, wishes that all would be saved, sends sunshine and rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous, and has no favourites. This is a God whose posture of grace extends to all, regardless of any reward or punishment they may seem to deserve. This is a God who releases the oppressed, who creates a home for us, and who forgives even those who would prefer that God was dead. Grace is not blind to evil, nor does it condone the harm we do to ourselves, each other, and our world, but is continually expressed in acts of mercy that undermine evil by enabling a better alternative. John 1.16 says, From Jesus' fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It is this grace that says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. There is no us and them. There is no deserving nor undeserving. God's mercy is extended to all, irrespective of any such category. It is all gift. May our posture be the same as God's, blind to any cultural or religious notion of what people deserve or do not deserve. The posture of grace from which mercy springs does not say, I'll be nice to you even though you don't deserve it. God's acts of justice and mercy are based on compassion for people in need, not on whether the recipient deserves or does not deserve it. Grace and mercy deny any sense of what someone deserves and surprises people with blessings anyway. To love mercy, in the way Micah 6.8 suggests, forces us to eschew any attribution of desert. If mercy is the main course, you cannot have desert. Subheading. Just mercy, stone catchers, and maledigera. In 2014, Brian Stevenson published the book Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption which was later turned into a highly acclaimed movie. The book documents Stevenson's work with the Equal Justice Initiative to provide legal assistance to prisoners condemned to death in the USA. The book's main narrative tracks Stevenson's advocacy on behalf of Walter McMillan, who had been convicted of a murder in 1988 and was waiting to be executed. The case against McMillan was flimsy at best, and largely because of Stevenson's advocacy, was finally overturned in 1993. Alongside Macmillan's case, the book assigns chapters to numerous other death row cases 
against a backdrop of a country that has the highest rate of incarceration per capita of any nation in the world. As of April 2021, the USA has 2,504 prisoners facing the possibility of execution. And since the reinstatement of capital punishment in 1976, the penal system has executed 1,532 people. In the case of Macmillan and most of the other Stevenson reports, the actions of police, public prosecutors and court officials were prejudicial rather than fair or thorough. The case against Macmillan relied on the obviously fabricated and coerced evidence of two people that placed Macmillan at the location of the murder. Contrary evidence from at least a dozen witnesses who saw Macmillan at a church event at the time of the murder was ignored. What struck me most while reading Just Mercy was not the need for mercy in these cases, but the need for justice. Macmillan and others described in the book were, in varying degrees, denied justice. They were convicted and condemned to death without a fair hearing of the evidence. The so-called justice system did nothing to promote shalom or to return things to how they should be. Justice was obscured by selective investigation, coercion of witnesses, hiding evidence, stacking juries and systematic racism. It was not that the legal system imposed justice without mercy, but rather that the legal system was pathologically unable to act justly. A similar observation could be made about an act of rape, when a person cries out for their attacker to have mercy. Mercy is not really what they need, but fairness and simple human dignity. If the assailant heard such a plea and decided to desist, there would be nothing morally laudable about that. It would just be re-establishing equity. A cry for mercy in such cases is a cry for the abuser to be human. The cry for mercy begs the abuser to rethink who they are and who the victim is. It is a call to treat the victim as a person who is equally human and as valuable as the attacker. Although just mercy demonstrates repeated failures to act justly by the law enforcement system, the book is full of mercy from other sources. Mercy sits in the background of the whole book, in the life of the author, and others who expend their time, emotional energy, reputation and career to counter the indignity and injustice imposed on the prisoners they care for. That source of mercy is made wonderfully clear in the last chapter of the book, which draws on the story of Jesus' engagement with the woman caught in adultery. While wandering the halls of a courthouse, Stevenson encounters an older woman he did not know, who hugged him and asked to speak with him. Fifteen years previously, her grandson had been murdered, and she had sat in this very courthouse when the killers were sentenced. As she recalled that day, she said to Stevenson, quote, I sat in the courtroom after they were sentenced and just cried and cried. A lady came over to me and gave me a hug and lent me lean on her. She asked me if the boys who got sentenced were my children, and I told her no. I told her the boy they killed was my child. She hesitated. I think she sat with me for almost two hours. For well over an hour, we didn't neither of us say a word. It felt good to finally have someone to lean on at that trial, and I've never forgotten that woman. I don't know who she was, but she made a difference. End of quote. Since then, she often came to the courthouse to comfort others in the way that unknown woman had comforted her so many years before. Quote, it has been wonderful, Brian. 
When I first came, I'd look for people who had lost someone to murder or some violent crime. Then it got to the point where some of the ones grieving the most were the ones whose children or parents were on trial, so I started letting anybody lean on me who needed it. All these young children being sent to prison forever, all this grief and violence, those judges throwing people away like they're not even human, people shooting each other, hurting each other like they don't care. I don't know, it's a lot of pain. I decided that I was supposed to be here to catch some of the stones people cast at each other. End of quote. That woman's attitude springs from deep theology and wisdom. If we follow the way of mercy, then we too will be stone catchers, even though it hurts to catch all of them stones people throw. A remarkably similar idea is embedded in an Australian Indigenous practice. Quote, A criminal sentenced to death has to stand before the tribal men to be speared, but the defendant obtains a maladigra, a champion or trained deflector of spears. All that the maladigra uses is a woomera, that's a wooden tool normally used for throwing spears. He tells his client, you watch me and my movements and do everything I do, don't watch the spears. He places himself in front of his client, woomera in hand, he deflects all the spears and breaks them, and when all the spears are broken, his client is free. End of quote. To be a stone catcher, or a spear catcher, is to enact both justice and mercy. Such acts recognise the humanity and inherent worth of both victim and perpetrator. While still acknowledging the wrong done by one against the other, they create new opportunities for life, health, dignity, and flourishing for both. Such acts are often surprising and controversial. As Stevenson notes, quote, it's when mercy is least expected that it's most potent, strong enough to break the cycle of victimization and victimhood, retribution and suffering. End of quote. May we all pursue opportunities to be stonecatchers and maladigera. With that restorative intention, acting out of compassion for people's needs, rather than based on some artificial notion of what they deserve, we see justice and mercy moving in synergy towards shalom. Subheading. Something to consider. What opportunities do you have to speak of mercy into the ear of justice? Will you be a stonecatcher? chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook.